and welcome to National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And today we come to you with part three out of our four-part prequel series for National Treasure. Because yes, if you somehow missed it up until this point in season five of our show, we have learned that there is a prequel book series for National Treasure. There is, and let me tell you, it is a rip-roaring good time, and I don't say that as an intentional pun, but based on some of the setting of this book, that might be applicable. (laughs) Actually, surprisingly true. Um, So this book series is called A Gates Family Mystery Series, and today's book, book number three, is called Uncharted, not to be confused with the recent feature film Uncharted, which we will end up covering, spoiler alert, later on in this season. So I'm sure this is uh, working out very well in everyone's brains, Emily. It's going to be super clear. Uh, We'll just make a reminder, you know, this is not about a video game. No. Um, Video games, quite honestly, did not exist weren't even close to being thought of to exist at the time period in which this book takes place. So that should really, that should really help you, uh, I feel, on your uh, educational voyage. Once again, not a pun, but. Hmm. <laughs> wow, you're full of them today. Um, so if you're going to be following along with us today, pick up your copy of Uncharted by Katherine Hapka and have fun following along. But of course, if you don't have the book, that is A-OK. We're going to be going into more detail than you probably ever wanted to know about this story in just a few minutes. But before then, we have to kick off this episode as we always do with our screams from Parkington Lane. Our screams from Parkington Lane are, of course, a reference to the giant pit that our protagonists from National Treasure basically fall into at the end of our first National Treasure movie. Parkington Lane, for us on National Treasure Hunt, is truly a symbol of the deep, deep depths that Emily and I have fallen into as National Treasure has slowly but surely taken over our entire lives. So Emily, do you have a scream from the deepest depths of Parkington Lane to share with us today? I do. And Aubrey, I felt like you were down there with me uh, this week. Um, I have to say I felt like you, uh, which is scary thought in and of itself. But for this, these purposes, it was great. So we had a lab meeting yesterday, and it was occurring via Zoom. Somebody was uh, talking about some renovations that were being done in the building. And uh, in the office next to where our lab is, someone had talked about how there was a lot of drilling that had been going on, which is problematic for the kind of research that we do. Um, we were discussing how the drilling we presumably is over, and how we think that the loudest of it happened when they were trying to dislodge slash open uh, a safe that had been there for years and years. What? That nobody seemed to be able to open or remember the code or had the key to it. It was basically just like, like this locked thing that I guess was like in the wall um, that they had to get out and open. And we were all 
trying to figure out like what could have been in it and uh my boss suggested that it was some sort of treasure um at which point i almost typed into the chat this sounds like something for national treasure but i didn't um the i know i was so Why disappointed didn't in you? myself seriously um, <laughs> but uh it happened wow um i mean you really were on track to being like me there, but I am disappointed that you didn't make a public reference to National Treasure in that moment because that would have truly been like me. I also have a scream to share. Um, it is much shorter, I believe, but one that is really a, a direct attack on you, Emily. And, and that is, <laughs> uh, for context for our listeners, um, Emily and I were recently in a stage of our book drafting where we were doing like a massive edit. Like we had read through the full book from beginning to end uh, for, you know, coherence and, and, you know, making sure everything sounded right, was in the right place, et cetera. And so this was obviously a pretty large task. And, um, I am the keeper of the final drafts basically on my computer. So Emily is sending me lots of track change documents for me to finalize, et cetera. And I had a nightmare the other day, Emily. And I had a nightmare that you sent me back all of the chapters and none of them were in track changes. And this wasn't fully a nightmare. <laughs> I think it came from, <laughs> care to explain to our listeners what you mean? I had sent Aubrey something. I was like checking out for the day, going to do something with the family. And all of a sudden I get a bunch of text messages from Aubrey that are like, did you or did you not use track changes? I asked you to use track changes. Emily, something that you have written here is clearly different than what it was in the previous chapter. And it does not track change. How many things did you not put track changes on? Because I was not, I was not planning on reading the entire chapter again. And I was like, uh... First of all, calm down. Second of all, excuse it was, me. It was one thing that I distinctly remember not putting in track changes and being like, "Oh no, I should have put that in track changes," and then putting everything else in track changes. And once I assured you that I had done that, you seemed more calm. Yeah, and I'm trusting that that is the truth because I did not. <laughs> she did not read all of the chapters over again but that's the root of my nightmare because in my nightmare I had to go ahead and read all 50,000 plus words of our book again which took me enough time the first time we're not doing that again until we're farther along in the process of publication so I was just trying to give you a little treat in your dreams well and I woke up and was like Number one, thankfully, that was a dream. And number two, I'm going to write this down so I don't forget to use it on this week's episode. Thank you for throwing me under the bus. Um, if anyone else would like to throw me under the bus uh, <laughs> in their screams or just in life, please feel free to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. We are available for your listening ears on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to find out more information about this book that we're talking about, about our tour, about our merch store, or you can't seem to find us on social media or in podcast world, 
based on the information I just gave you, please feel free to visit our website. It is nthuntpodcast.com, and you will find all of that information there right at your fingertips, ready for you, and designed by the lovely Aubrey. Why, thank you. Well, now that all those pleasantries. Yeah, those are out of the way. They were, they were very pleasant today, clearly. They were, they were about a secret safe and me getting dream mad at Emily. Um, What's new? <laughs> we can dive right into this book, Uncharted. Now, as a quick reminder, as we said, this is book three in this four-part series. We have now moved from book one that was set at the Jamestown Colony in the United States, well, pre-United States, to the onset, if you will, of the American Revolution in book number two. And here in book number three, we are at the time of the Louisiana Purchase. Okay, so that is how we're going to orient ourselves today when we meet Ben Gates' newest ancestors. And to do so, we're obviously going to go through the book storyline step by step, chapter by chapter, and add our own thoughts and comments about national treasure and our bound to be opinionated takes on the story we're about to review. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a quick question. Please. Looking at the cover of this, you know, I feel like it's been a common thing. We've we've looked at the covers of these books and we usually find something, you know, a little deeper in them after we've read the book and therefore have an understanding of what the cover image may or may not be about. Naturally. Uh, um, I see on the cover and we'll post a picture on our social media that there is uh, two people on raft basically uh doesn't look dissimilar to what jack uh and rose were on momentarily uh (laughs) after they the titanic sunk um there is there are two people one person clearly wearing a dress and then another person rowing um my question is were there or were there not three main characters in this book and if so where is the third uh number one there are number two uh this book clearly uh decided to take this non-photographic image when that third character is doing one of his periodic running away from the group spells Mm. and he's lying down or that and number three i too thought this was a boat for a very long time but i've changed my mind Oh, yeah, now it's just like a bunch of sticks stuck together. No, now I think they're digging something up. Specifically, the man is digging something up. Uh, but it looks like water that they're on. Well, that's just because the background is blue. No, there's like little ripples at the bottom. Uh, I think you're reading into it a little bit far. You could be right. You could be right. I'm just, I'm seeing it differently now. Okay. We'll have to let our, our listeners weigh in once they see a picture of this cover. And we will get to those three main characters in just a second. Hold your horses or maybe boats. Hold your boats. Um, I just have to quickly give a shout out like I did last episode to the previous owner of this middle school child era book. 
Her name was Alexa Cruz, and I just have to give Alexa a virtual pat on the back. She kept this book in much better condition than Logan Dunbar did, my last book, okay? Um, so to get us started here today, I genuinely overall could not tell you how much time passes in this book. I, Zero idea. I, I kind of feel like it's a year and a half, if I had to guess. Um, to be totally fair there's lots of like at the beginning of every chapter it says like months later or days later or weeks later so you could totally calculate the amount of time if you wanted to but we just we just don't have time for that today you know no we are more focused on the treasure hunting aspects of this book of which there are not a ton yeah, this book is very interesting to me in that there are simultaneously, there will be, sort of two different treasure hunts going on, yet we don't get to any of them until much later in the book. So to get us started, we meet, well, I guess our Ben Gates, our, our main protagonist, the, the protagonist through which the story is really told. His name is Adam Benjamin Gates, and he has a twin sister named Ellie. And we meet them in the spring of the year 1803. Now, one of the first things I do really, really like about this book is that we see some continuity with the previous book. Now, Adam and Ellie are the children of John Raleigh Gates. You might remember John Raleigh Gates as the protagonist of our last book. Of course, he was much more of a teenager age in that story, and now he is not a teenager. He has what we think are teenage kids. We don't actually know their age. Anyway, um, we also learn that Adam and Ellie's grandfather, John's dad, Thomas, is still alive and they all still live in Concord, Massachusetts. And still do stuff with the livery, 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 which is a word we learned last episode. Absolutely. But guess what, Emily? Adam and Ellie are not going to live in Concord, Massachusetts for long. All right. Um, one immediate reaction that I had here um, is that it's very clear. I don't know if this was intentional or not, that many, many more generations had passed between the first and second books compared to the second and third books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I noticed that like right away. I was like, oh, I actually remember who these people are. Yeah, I really liked that for providing continuity between the series. Um, and I should also note for fans of Midnight Ride, the second book, we do learn that Duncan and Alice were married and that George was unfortunately killed in the Revolutionary War. Um, R.I.P. George. And if y'all don't know what we're talking about there, you're gonna have to go back and listen to our last episode. Anyway, um, we learn a little bit more about our characters. Um, Adam is infuriating. I did not get that vibe, but okay. <laughs> okay, I couldn't stand him. <laughs> he cares about literally nothing. Um, though he doesn't like totally hate the concept of treasure hunting. Um, I just found Adam, he, especially in the beginning, he was just like a prankster. He took nothing seriously. Um, and that's going to be sort of a recurring theme and he's going to end up not liking that about himself. So it's not just me, I guess. Um, then we have Ellie who really balks at the social conventions of the day. So love to see it. She, as a young woman, is quite educated and passionate about science and nature. And she also thinks treasure hunting is dumb. I have to say that uh, when the book started, so Catherine Havka, I've noticed, 
uh, does this thing where she introduces a lot of characters to give some context and some like familial connections to everyone. So it's not like you're just plucking some random characters out of nowhere. Um, so in the beginning, I'm trying to keep track of names and absolutely doing a terrible job of it. Uh, but you can't tell right away who's going to be the main character of the book, mm-hmm. like in that introduction part before chapter one. So when Ellie was introduced and they are and um, the author made a big deal about how she was, you know, against normal social conventions and was very well educated, and super into nature and science and all that. I was like, we're getting our first female protagonist. She's going to be the lead of this book. That is amazing. And then it didn't happen. No, but she's very involved, although she's a little like Daphne from Scooby-Doo, Damsel in Distressy in the beginning, which we'll, we'll get in the middle. Well, and in the <laughs> first two you know, thirds, we'll, when she gets we'll get that. We'll get there. So, okay, here's the scoop. Ellie wants to join the Lewis and Clark expedition that temporally is just about to start. So uh, I have to make a make a note here that I think Aubrey you'll find very entertaining. Um, slash roll your eyes at me. Um, the first time that the name Meriwether Lewis was brought up, I was like, "Who is this person that they're talking about?" Are you serious? And it wasn't until a little bit later I was like, "Oh, this might be Lewis from Lewis and Clark," but. I, I'm I'm gonna wait to text Aubrey about it. I'm not sure. And then when Clark happened, I was like, okay, no, it is them. Wow. I really don't have much to say um to to that. This is not a judgment or a commentary on anyone else who's unfamiliar with Lewis and Clark. This is specifically a judgment of Emily, who lives in this national treasure world with me. And like, we heard about Lewis and Clark when we visited Independence Hall. And we've talked about how Lewis and Clark could be a part of National Treasure 3 and all of that. So thank you for sharing. You're welcome. Anyway, let's continue. (laughs) Anyway. Um, Ellie wants to join the expedition, but like a recurring theme throughout the book literally is how everyone involved finds the concept of a woman joining the expedition to be utterly ridiculous. Which like, for the time, accurate. In the context of how we like to see things presented nowadays, not so great. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say that. I mean, we we can look back at history critically and also seeing it seeing it depicted in like quotable lines of a fictional text. Like we're seeing in a weird way people say it and it's like, "Ooh, don't love that even a right. little bit." <laughs> um in any case, their grandfather Thomas, who we obviously know very well, says that he heard through the grapevine that the real purpose of the Lewis and Clark mission, it's not for exploration and charting to like get to know this new territory that America owns, but actually Lewis and Clark are going to find the treasure of the ancients, which we've heard referenced in both previous books at this point. Now, mm-hmm. Emily, you and I have had our very strong suspicions based on context clues about the quote unquote treasure of the ancients, that this is a reference to the Templar treasure. And this book basically confirms it, right? It does. And I was excited as an understatement. Yeah. Uh, I, was, I was overjoyed. Is that better than excitement? Maybe. I was happy. <laughs> 
Well, this confirmation comes um, in the form of a couple of things. Here's a quote that I picked out, quote, it was said to date from the time of the pharaohs or earlier, a treasure that had been fought over for centuries growing larger throughout time, end quote, which I'm pretty sure is nearly a direct reference or quote in parts to national treasure itself. And then they go on to say that the whereabouts are only known by Freemasons who were descended by the Knights Templar. I do have to say that I had a brief moment here because the Freemasons Knights Templar is something that I've been so involved in, uh, in the podcast and even in uh, the book writing process. When I initially read uh, the Freemasons descended from the Knights Templar, I was like, oh, this book got it wrong too. And then I remember that we were in the same, we were in the same like storyline. So like, of course, they also thought that. Oh my gosh. No, that's, that's actually really funny. Something that I realized um, just in the context of this book series world, it's unclear to me when our characters learned this about the Freemasons and the Knights Templar, because this definitely didn't show up in book one. Book two didn't deal with the treasure of the ancients at all. It pretty much only mentioned it in passing like they do for all the protagonists to be like, oh, we'd love to find a treasure like the treasure of the ancients. So like this clearly happened in like an off season of the book. Um, That being said, I know, Emily, you and I have had debates on the podcast before about whether from National Treasure, Ben and his father, Patrick, are Freemasons themselves. And we've found support for or against that theory um based at this point in time i still don't think the gates family members are freemasons because they really talk about it kind of distantly as if they're like looking in on this mythical world they know very little about um plus the family is still in this like harness and stable business which has nothing to do with architecture or construction and i feel like if they were freemasons they would probably know a little bit more yeah that's a good point i mean Probably not all the Freemasons knew about this, probably only like the important ones, but yeah, but that's a good point. So anyway, Thomas, the grandfather, does another really important callback to this book series. He basically gives the medallion, this wooden medallion that first shows up at the end of book one, is mentioned in passing in book two. It's basically passed down through the family and purported to be a treasure hunting clue. He gives the medallion to Adam instead of Adam's older brother, George, which is apparently like a big deal. In doing so, Thomas explains that family lore suggests that the lineage of this medallion basically started with a man from the lost colony of Roanoke. And that man, as he was leaving Roanoke, gave it to the native woman who then gave it to the Gates ancestor, okay? And I can't remember if we knew this or not. Like, did we know that the family believes that the man who started the medallion was from Roanoke? I feel like we didn't know that. I thought we did. I mean, we knew that Roanoke was relevant to the first book, but it was never explicitly stated that this man was like, hey, I'm a Roanoke man. I'm peacing out. Here's a medallion on my way out. Like, you know? I think I assumed it was. Oh, okay. I did not at all. So well done. Thank you. (laughs) That was news to me. I was like, when did we learn this? Anyway, Adam now has this medallion. Ellie wants to go on the Lewis and Clark expedition. And so this brother and sister team, they sneak away from Concord to Philadelphia, which is where- 
which is where not only Emily lives, but where Lewis is currently stationed um, before he leaves for the expedition. Now, I just have to point out that they do this in a very weird, specific, morbid way. Did you catch Mm -hmm. this? I did. I didn't love it. So basically, just by happenstance, a man from Philadelphia was like super drunk and died in Concord. And so his body had to go back to Philly. So they offered to drive it back. Which like, maybe it was less of a thing back then. But like, if I had a dead relative, I don't know that I would want some random teenager driving (laughs) that person back from whence they died where they died (laughs) (laughs) whence and where they whence and where yeah I mean I guess you had a lot fewer options back then but in the process of this sneaking away we are immediately introduced to Adam's primary character trait which is guilt so in this case he feels guilty about sneaking away and not telling his grandfather that he personally is accompanying Ellie because he wants to search for a treasure etc etc I do have to say that though I mentioned earlier that Adam didn't really annoy me this thing about him annoyed me um because I'm very much the kind of person that like needs to tell the truth all the time so like that I don't feel guilty about things because I feel guilty about enough things and my solution is like if you're gonna feel guilty about something like just tell someone like don't just like bottle it up Adam like share that share that guilt share those feelings you could have just told your grandfather he probably would have been like good on you boy they did tell their older brother yeah but not their grandfather he's guilty about the grandfather that's true well there's gonna be a lot more guilt where that came from in any case um Unfortunately for everyone involved, upon arriving in Philadelphia, they learn that Lewis has already left for Pittsburgh where his boat is being built. Darn. Sad face. So basically, they end up hitching a ride with the new villains of the series. Their names are the Brewster brothers. They actually have distinct first names, but that's really unimportant. So we're not even going to commit them to airtime on this podcast. Um, What you need to know about the Brewster brothers is that they're this treasure hunting trio known for being ruthless in their treasure pursuits. Um, It is revealed, for instance, that they previously stalked Lewis. Um, And we also learned that they probably killed a messenger to obtain a message that the messenger was taking from President Thomas Jefferson to Meriwether Lewis. Mm -hmm. So um, not great, ruthless, gives me very Ian Howe vibes. So en route to Pittsburgh, um, there ends up being someone hiding on board. It's a young Irish immigrant named, wait for it, Franklin Poole. And I literally wrote, shut up, OMG, in my book. (laughs) Aubrey. Emily. I feel that you and the listeners need to know that upon reading this i was like this name must be important somehow there must be some reference back to history here and until i read your document uh that you have so nicely crafted where aubrey has written franklin pool parentheses i literally wrote shut up omg in my book it took me a second then to be like why would she write shut up omg in her book what in the world I- oh pool, pool riley yep 
my heart just like sank. <laughs> I still love Riley. I just don't refer to him by his last name a lot. It's like the most distinct last name in our entire book and our entire movie series. Oh my god. Oh Do my god. Do we think god. it's related to Riley? Of course. What are you yeah. talking about? That's so cool. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Not at all, but it's so cool. Don't edit out that long pause. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> no. But I'm so glad that you and everyone else in the audience could be here for my uh, pure emotional reaction to finding that out for the first time. This is like, amazing. I love this book so much. I, I, I'm actually speechless. And I'm really conflicted in my head right now whether to dedicate more time to discussing this insanity or to keep going I really don't know keep going keep going uh, okay well Franklin Poole spelled p-o-o-l-e like Riley Poole a very distinct last name in the National Treasure universe he is a young Irish immigrant who has recently been orphaned Turns out his life is also in danger because he witnessed the Brewster brothers doing that unspeakable, probably killing of Jefferson's messenger earlier on in the story. And so Ellie basically decides to be motherly and sort of takes him in because um, she's kind of the only one he'll talk to. He's very nervous. Um, this also, I was going to ask you about this, Emily, but given that you just discovered that Franklin Poole is a predecessor to Riley Poole, you're not going to have an answer. So I'll just muse to the ether. Um, <laughs> the choice of naming this character specifically Franklin Poole also makes me wonder if Benjamin Franklin Gates is named, obviously in part for Ben Franklin, like the founding father, but also in part for some of the Benjamins in his ancestry and in some part for Franklin Poole. That would be so cool because that would mean that Ben and Riley's families have been friends for generations and that maybe Ben and Riley like went to preschool together and all that. Well, Riley Poole's ancestor Franklin will end up joining the trip under the wing of Ellie. Emily. This will come up later. And is completely, I promise you, unrelated, obviously, because I did not make this connection. But one of my comments is going to be about the amount of legwork that Franklin Poole does in this expedition. And I feel that there is something to be said for an ancestor of Riley's doing so much for a treasure hunting expedition. Guys, I feel like I can see all the puzzle pieces coming together in Emily's like eyes right now. It's kind of crazy. It's so cool. I just can't. I just, I just can't. We're going to come back to this a couple of times because this is unadulterated, unfiltered. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing it live. <laughs> um, once the group makes it to Pittsburgh, Ellie and Adam find Meriwether Lewis. They ask to join his expedition. And he says that he will only take Adam. So Adam declines because it's really his sister's dream. Good brother move. Yeah. Now at this point, 
to really emphasize the patriarchal undertones of this time, I did pull out a couple of quotes that I would like to read to our lovely listeners to tell you exactly what Meriwether Lewis said. Are you ready, Emily? My heart is not, but my ears are. So, Emily, I've decided um, that you're going to reenact these lines. So, please begin. <laughs> Just to be clear, Meriwether Lewis did not have a British accent, right? I don't need to carry on that bit from last episode. Well, actually, to be honest with you, I was thinking about this literally three days ago, and I was like, why did Emily do a British accent? All of these clues were hidden by Americans. <laughs> okay. Uh, anyway, so Meriwether Lewis says to Ellie, oh, my dear. <laughs> of course, we cannot have a woman on the expedition. It's quite out of the question. He also goes on to say, I am very sorry, miss. It's just not possible. Perhaps your brother could send you correspondence about the trek. Yeah, thank you for the reenactments. My favorite part was the laugh. Um, and what I'll say is at the very least, Lewis also won't take the Brewster brothers along on the expedition because of their bad reputation. So... Anyway, Ellie's super sad. Adam is just kind of going along with it. And when they try to go back to Massachusetts, back home, they realize that those sneaky little Brewsters robbed them on the drive-in. So they basically have to live and work in Pittsburgh for a while until they have enough money to pay their fare home. Mm-hmm. Our, little, our little buddy, uh, little Riley ancestor buddy Franklin, Frankie boy, um does a little disappearing act um which is not uncommon for him like he Uh, does on the cover of the book like he does on the cover of the book exactly (laughs) where's frankie boy who knows (laughs) uh so yeah frankie boy's not there um and you know eventually he comes back right and he shows adam this sketch that he has of the medallion that happened to be in Adam's pocket. A little weird. Um, it takes everybody a, a little while, kind of, to, well, not Frankie Boy, Frankie Boy knew, but it takes everyone else a little while to kind of learn that Frankie Boy copied it off of a rock that he found in the woods, even though I would like to point out from the time he showed it to Adam, he was saying, I found it there and pointing to the woods. Right. Of course, the big revelation here is that the medallion in Adam's pocket is not unique, and that will become important. So Mm -hmm. here we have another um, guilt interlude of Adam's, and this is really not relevant. I'm just pointing it out because this is like a very common theme that, I don't know if you like it or you hate it, but he says, all around me, things, exciting things are happening. The Brewster brothers may be on the track to discovering a treasure for the ages, or at least giving it a good try. Even Franklin Poole is out there exploring and making mysterious drawings and doing who knows what else. And what am I doing? Listening to my father and grandfather and uncle tell tales of glory for when they were my age? So a lot of self-loathing going on here. Yeah, maybe it didn't bother me. Maybe his character didn't bother me so much because I, like... I feel the self-loathing on like (laughs) on a fundamental level. Well, we just got dark. Um... (laughs) (laughs) And to continue with the dark theme, what happens next? Well, 
perfect segue because the Brewsters decide to basically kidnap Ellie and Adam to steal the medallion, which Adam had stupidly told one of the brothers about on their way to Pittsburgh. Now, Adam really tries to pull a Ben Gates here and tells the brothers that only he, only Adam Gates can interpret the medallion. So you can't kill him, right? This is very much like Ben's there's more to the clue line in the bowels of the Charlotte to try to prevent Shaw and Ian's other henchmen from shooting him and Riley. And while the Riley Franklin's ancestor. Yeah, that one, that the the very same. Um, While the Brewsters are discussing this, you know, is Adam full of it or not? Frank, he's just around all the time. He saw that they had been abducted. So he was waiting out the window. He like breaks into this place where the, where Adam and Ellie are being held and he starts rescuing them, but he can only rescue Adam. He can't get to Ellie in time. So Frank and Adam run off and Ellie is left with the Brewsters. It is. Yeah. I was a little, I was like shocked at the kidnapping of both of them. But then when we couldn't save Ellie, I was a little like, oh, wow, we're, we're going here. Um, and I'm glad that's all we did. And we didn't get any darker, but I had some fears. Yeah, well, I was really hoping that he, uh, Franklin, much like Franklin preferred, would have preferred, I hoped he would have rescued Ellie and left um, Adam. Not because it's funny, because it would have really paralleled when Abigail and Riley had to work together to free Ben from FBI custody. This is true. This is, this is very true. But alas, Adam must arrange a meeting. He tells the Brewsters a fake interpretation of the medallion, just like Patrick Gates' fake national treasure clue in the first movie. And he says, you know, I'm giving you this meaning. You're going to give me Ellie, (laughs) basically. But, like, obviously the Brewsters aren't going to honor their deal. Like, I don't know what went through Adam's mind. Like, duh. Naivete. Exactly. So instead, the Brewsters take Ellie to the dock. They load her onto a boat. And um, despite all of, apparently, Ellie's verbal protests with all these people around when she was being loaded onto said boat. Um, no one actually intervenes, which is very oof. I was like, once again, things from a fictional book written to take place in a time long ago are not unlike situations that happen today. Um, obviously I feel like today at least one of those people would have probably pulled out their cell phone. God, I hope uh, so. <laughs> and videoed what was happening. Uh, but you know, yeah, you never like those situations where you don't see uh witnesses intervening. It's not great. Yeah. So at this point, in my humble opinion, Adam's awfulness continues because he keeps trying to like shoo Frank, who actually knows way more than Adam does and has way better ideas than Adam does. Uh, So for instance, Frank basically swiped the letter from President Jefferson to Meriwether Lewis that the Brewsters had stolen from that messenger that they probably killed. So Frank stole that from the Brewsters and he actually gives Adam the letter as a bargaining chip to get Ellie back. So 
Adam and Frank commission a boat and they start pursuing the Brewster brothers themselves. They take this opportunity to take a look at the letter from President Jefferson. And it's basically a short verse followed by a substitution cipher. The verse part reads, Pursuant to my earlier letters, I now offer you this confidential missive that I am trustful you alone shall be capable of deciphering to your great fortune. Thus, with preamble, I offer you these key words. Now, Emily, we're going to have another instance here just like last episode where I have to ask you. Something here was very obvious to me, and I need to know if it was obvious to you. From the moment I read that, it was very obvious to me that the key word or text associated with the subsequent cipher is some important preamble, maybe to the Constitution or some other important document. Did you get that? No. What I did get was the fact that the letter said, I offer you these key words. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, well, something that they just said is clearly important for deciphering the substitution cipher, which I feel like is a step in the right direction for me personally. It, it absolutely is. And also, I would like to say spoiler alert, but Meriwether Lewis will not be the only one to be able to solve this riddle because it's a really very lame and poor riddle. And I think President Jefferson could done, could have done a lot better. Could anyway. have a lot better a couple things in his life, but... <laughs> Woof. Okay, so um, our two of our three protagonists catch up to the Brewsters after about a week on the water. They're now like past Cincinnati. Geographically, I have no idea where we are this entire nope. book. <laughs> no clue. We're gonna uh, we're we're gonna end up later on in the Dakotas, and I was like, wow, I literally thought we were going towards Mississippi. I was also picturing all of this happening like on the coast. Oh my god. <laughs> I didn't think like Do you river. know where Pittsburgh is? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think like river. I just thought thought like body of water, clearly it's the ocean. Even wow. though they kept saying river. So I was like, how are they getting to Ohio? <laughs> Well, yes, lots of rivers involved here. Um, Basically, the Brewsters refuse to exchange the letter for Ellie because they say they have another copy of the letter because obviously, why wouldn't they? And so under cover of night, Adam and Frank sneak her off the boat, but they end up having to swim ashore and don't have a boat anymore because the captain that they had hired left them stranded. And all I have to say is the theme of this book really seems to be how awful humans are, like whether it's the Brewsters or Lewis and the patriarchy or the people on the dock who ignored Ellie's cries or now this captain, you know, like just rough go. Yeah, it's not my favorite. Uh my favorite view of people but like i said not unlike the times we live in so continuing to be relevant yeah absolutely so um basically there are the three protagonists are back together uh we have adam ellie and franklin they all are now like in the wilderness woods stranded like no boat no food no nothing Franklin ends up helping them survive in the wild because apparently the whole time, many months they were in Pittsburgh, he was just kind of out exploring. And again, he's an orphan. And so living off the land. So they basically tried to wait for a boat to pass on the river, not the ocean, um, to... (laughs) 
try to get someone to take them back to Pittsburgh. But the only boat that ever eventually comes is obviously the Brewsters, who they have to run from again. There's a lot of foot chases in this. There are. And it's like, it's always with the same people. Oh, yeah. There's- and I just want to be like, and I would like to say, so earlier in the book, which I, I didn't know. So when the, you know, they, they take this carriage drive, the Brewster brothers and Adam and Ellie, you know, they, they end up in Pittsburgh and then, you know, they like part ways. And it literally says in the book, the Brewsters were gone, never to be heard from again. And I marked that down because I thought that was like pretty weird. And then like two pages later, guess what? They were heard from again and they continue to be heard from again throughout the entire book. It's true. Just a little suspense. Sorry, that was uh, my rant. We need it. We always need at least one Emily rant per episode. So quota filled. Um, Basically, to escape the Brewsters, our protagonists find their way into this like large underground tunnel cave thing. (laughs) I really don't know how to describe it. Um, And now for some geographical ill logic. Um, after a very long walk that we assume takes like most of a day, they exit the tunnel into an area where the foliage and rocks are quite different from where they entered and just straight up nowhere near a river or any body of water. Now, a couple of things related to this long tunnel walk that are worth pointing out before we talk about the, the implication of these different geological features. Number one. I see in my notes here, I've written Riley. You like you have. That. And I will say that we did learn more about Riley because we learned about Riley's ancestors. Yes. In this context, on this walk, we learn more about Franklin Poole. Uh, it turns out that his father, also an Irish immigrant, helped to build the White House. But unfortunately, he was killed in the architectural process by a falling stone. Well, death. We also learn that Franklin seems to have a photographic memory of sorts. Mm, If only his ancestors had uh, inherited that. Indeed. And finally, Franklin reveals that he actually saw multiple rocks in the woods with this medallion symbol on them. And those symbols, if you will, they were directional. They sort of have an arrow. They lead to one another. They basically, because of that, comprise a map. And I'm going to make a quick pop culture reference here. I don't know if anyone like myself has discovered the literal gold that is the docuseries Pirate Gold of Adak Island on Netflix, which is like kind of popular right now. If you haven't watched it, it is phenomenal and watch it. Um, But basically, if you've watched that series, how the treasure hunters uh, near the end of the series see those markings that are sort of like arrows pointing to one another in the distance. That's what we have here. Same thing. Hmm. Um, And yes, Emily, you should go watch that. I did start watching it only because of National Treasure Hunt as a concept, and then I fell in love with it, and I must have a second season. I was going to ask how many seasons there were. Hopefully another one coming, and I think it will because it, it like premiered to like Netflix top 10. Anyway, recall that to walk through this tunnel, it took them a day, but they now have to walk like several days to find the river again. And I just have to say that Franklin would kill it on the game show Survivor because he's helping them figure out like how to make fire, what to eat, 
which things are poison, etc. Which I have to say, he almost let Adam eat some poisonish. Oh, gosh! Um, which was and, so funny. It was so funny. And then Adam was like, why didn't you tell me? And he was like, I just told you. <laughs> I was like, you're a little jerk, Franklin. <laughs> It was so funny. And at that moment, you didn't realize he was Riley's just like ancestor. Like, oh my God. Um, anyway, when they do find the river, the book notes that they're like on the wrong side of the river that they should be, and that the river is wider and muddier than they remembered. And I'm personally immediately like, this is obviously a different river. That's literally what I thought too. Yeah, so clearly, if Emily picked up on this, our character Adam <laughs> should have as well. Now, of course, the Brewsters just happen to be nearby. And so the protagonists end up stealing the Brewster's boat at night because it was funny and it would help them. They end up sailing upriver to, quote, try to get back to Pittsburgh. And I say, quote, because very soon we learn that that was not actually Franklin or Ellie's intentions at all. But Adam thinks it is. All the while, while they're on the boat, they're trying to crack the cipher in the Jefferson letter. And they finally realize that preamble is the clue because the line should like grammatically read without preamble, not with. Um, and so this is ultimately their real hint. Now, first they try the preamble to the constitution, which Franklin just so happens to like know by heart. As do most students of American history. You're, you're being facetious, right? No. You know the preamble to the Constitution? We the people, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice and joy, domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution. For the United States of America. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think it does. Uh, I gotta say, I don't know that. So I was really impressed and a little bit like, this is oddly convenient that Franklin knows this, but I guess it's not that out of the ordinary. Um, however, that preamble that Emily just sang did not work as the key text for the substitution cipher. And then they realized that Thomas Jefferson was way more involved with the Declaration of Independence than the Constitution. So they try the Declaration of Independence preamble, which Franklin also conveniently knows. And I'm just going to assume that Emily knows as well. Yeah, I am. I know it's like the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There's not a song for that one that I know of. Oh, darn. So Yes, the Declaration of Independence preamble is also the part that's referenced and quoted directly in National Treasure, the movie. Um, so this ends up working to crack the cipher. And I repeat, if three literal children can solve the cipher, Jefferson did not try hard enough. Um, and y'all are gonna die at what the cipher ends up saying. It says, only one of 56 holds the key. Beg ye the secret of CC of C. 
Emily, please tell me you knew exactly what this clue meant immediately. I did. Okay, thank God. Um, I also just love, like, CC of C is our little shorthand that we use in our notes on National Treasure Hunt. Mm -hmm. And so I really appreciated that. Anyway, real talk for a hot second. My question, Thomas Jefferson was not a Freemason. So how would he know this? How would he know about CC of C having whatever comes next? Maybe George Washington wrote about it in the president's secret book, Mike Drop. Ooh. <laughs> did you think of that? No. <laughs> well, I did. And now we can all think about it together. Anyway, we're not celebrating for long, Emily, because dumb Adam has just realized that we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. Um, and by that, I mean, we're on a different river and we've just <laughs> approached a different city. So it turns out that this whole recent time they've been on the Mississippi River, not the Ohio River, and they've just stumbled upon St. Louis. Now, plot twist, Ellie and Frank were conspiring this whole time to take this other route to try to catch up to the Lewis and Clark expedition. And they had totally left Adam in the dark. How do you feel about that, Em? I didn't love it. Um, to be honest, I kind of thought we were going to drop the Lewis and Clark thing. And spoiler alert, we we never meet up with them. Um, so <laughs> I don't know why we needed to be following them the whole time. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I I wasn't expecting it. It was a very good plot twist, I think. So I, I understand how Adam was, like, surprised by it, for sure. <laughs> but I didn't love that my girl Ellie and my new boy uh, Frank uh, did, did, that, did that to him. So part of the justification that Ellie and Frank give for this is that They've also just been going in the direction that the Pittsburgh medallion rocks were pointing them in. And at this point, I'm like, yeah, but those were hundreds of miles away. Right. <laughs> so near a different river, probably different river, different city, state, like whatever you want to call this. I was like, that is a stretch, but we're going to go. We're going to go with it. I mean, it turns out that it works out for the best. Because at this sudden magical point on the banks of St. Louis, they see the next medallion symbol on a rock. And Amazing. It's pointing north, northwest, upriver. Now, Emily, at this point in the story, it's just completely clear to me that the medallion and the Jefferson letter are completely unrelated and they're like about different treasures. Um, yeah. I was wondering if you got that vibe too. I honestly, and I'm not making this up, I got that vibe from the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, because, only because the medallion had been in previous, in like mentioned in the previous books, that I knew it had to do with like some treasure that we like had already kind of discussed. And then, I mean, I guess the one, the Jefferson one also kind of had to do with the treasure we'd already discussed. But it just like, it felt so different and they like spent so long not deciphering it. Mm -hmm. that I was like this can't be important like for this specific story yeah and so to it goes one step further for me it kind of what you've alluded to the medallion 
based on context clues from other books, from the previous books, that is about Cibola. And mm -hmm. the Jefferson letter, now that we know what that cipher says, is very clearly about the treasure of the ancient slash Templar treasure. They're one and the same. Now, mm -hmm. this clearly hasn't dawned on the characters yet that they're talking about two different treasure hunts here. Oh, no. um, but what this means is that this is starting to get very complicated. In this one book, we have very intertwined yet somewhat unrelated storylines, right? We have the Lewis expedition part. We have the Brewster conflict. We have the medallion. And now we have the Jefferson letter. And now they're pretty much totally separate threads, you know? And we have only recently started our actual treasure hunt. Yeah. And we're, if you're, we're looking at our Google doc right now, our little cursor has scrolled down three quarters of the way down our outline. So take that as you will. Um, so next, our protagonists are going to go upriver on the Missouri River, following the medallion symbols along the rocks on the riverbanks the whole way. Now, what this means to me, just like thinking back to the implication of this, um, there like must have been lots of these rocks leading from Roanoke to Pittsburgh right? If they started in Roanoke and then they found the next one in Pittsburgh, like there's no way you're just supposed to keep walking in that right. direction and thousands of miles, no, not thousands, but like hundreds of straight. miles later, keep going half, half, follow that North star. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah. That, well, that would have been something they would do in the time, but in any case, Adam does finally realize there's two different like trails and treasures at play here. Um, but they end up returning to the uncoded cipher and it is Franklin once again, that is able to figure this out for them. He tells them that there were 56 signers of the declaration of independence and that CC of C must refer to Emily. Charles Carol of Carrollton. Yes. Now I feel it important to point out here that both Gates kids have literally no idea who he is, which makes me laugh because on the podcast, we call him the most interesting founding father you've never heard of. <laughs> um, now, another quick thing that I thought of here, recall that Franklin is an immigrant and he clearly knows more about the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Founding Fathers than the Gates kids combined. And so I was almost wondering if this is a subtle commentary on immigrants and how they frequently have a passion or a reverence for the country that they're coming to, especially if they see it as an opportunity for a new life, a new, you know, a new start for their family. Um, Ooh, I, I like that a lot. I actually had a previous uh, person I worked with was actually taking the um, citizenship mm. exam a couple of years ago. And as they were studying for the exam, they would ask some of us the questions and some of us could not answer the questions yeah, which just it. astounded me because it's like we have you know people who were now making american citizens who know the answers to these things but the people who are like born in this country just like don't know the fundamental facts about the way that their government and their country works and that's including myself obviously Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, that's a good point. I think that that kind of supports this idea, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, one more thought before we move on. Now that our protagonists know what the clue means, 
I think it's instructive to look back and remember that the cipher was meant for Meriwether Lewis. So was he supposed to have received the letter while he was in the DC area since Charles Carroll lived in Maryland? Like, was he supposed to visit Charles Carroll before embarking on the expedition? Like, because otherwise, what good is the letter to him? Hmm. You know? But if he had done that, we wouldn't have had a national treasure problem. No, for sure. But like, I'm really question like what the point was to give him the letter, you know? Yeah. Um, anyway, that's not that important. Just something that my brain thought about because it does weird things. Um, so we're getting towards the end here. One day, Adam, Ellie, and Frank see a medallion marking that looks slightly different from the other ones. And they say that it has symbols that look vaguely map-like. Now, Franklin wanders off again. He apparently hasn't done this in a while, so this is very much a surprise to all. He wanders off and follows the map-like symbols to a weird-looking hill, and he digs up a map made of animal skin. Now, here's where we get some serendipity. Ellie, remember, she's the one who's, like, really into science and nature. So this whole trip, she's been, like, taking lots of notes she's been drawing her own maps she's been sketching wildlife she's been doing all this very explorer stuff and because of that they they're looking at the map that franklin dug up to figure out where they are like uh, you are here you know that's what they're looking for and it's conveniently located right near the x like x marks the spot mm-hmm. But of course, before they can go to the X, they have to evade the Brewsters again, whatever, whatever. They find the X area and pick a random place to dig. At least it wasn't measured by like four steps. This Paces. Time. Oh, yeah, we got rid of our paces. I love that. Um, they pick this random place to dig. They picked correctly and they pull out a three foot by two foot trunk the reveal of this trunk is literally just as anticlimactic as i'm making it sound (laughs) it's literally been the same with all of the treasure hunts like by this point when they pulled out the trunk i was like it's not gonna be anything great and to me that's like that's evidence of the fact that the treasures aren't traditional treasure and it Mm. almost to me makes the actual treasure reveals in both national treasure movies way more poignant because those are the real treasures so those get the fanfare and the reveal you know right um in this case the trunk is full of what is described as modest jewelry pieces spanish coins clothes and papers and snuff boxes and spoons and silver items and a ring, uh, but not the ring that you're looking for or thinking of from the first two books. I did have that question. I know. And (laughs) once again, like all of the previous books protagonists, Adam is disappointed at first in what the treasure is, but he does feel pride in having followed through with the family mission and seeing the hunt through to its conclusion. Well, actually, it's not to its conclusion. Mm. Anyway. The group basically decides, and I find this interesting, that what is this trunk? Well, when the Roanoke colonists left the lost colony, left Roanoke, they put their best stuff, this stuff, into the trunk to take with them. And the medallion clues were then meant to guide the people who were to come looking for them because obviously they, quote unquote, disappeared from Roanoke. 
I liked that. I thought it was an interesting, you know, guess at history, like not guess at real history. It's not like this is purporting to be true, but like an interesting fictional interpretation of a historical event. Um, but we're not done. We kind of have to make our like escape from a flooding sea below moment here. <laughs> They gather up all the items into their pockets and are approached by this frantic Native American woman who tells them to follow her in like language they cannot understand as she hides them. And that's when they realize the Brewster brothers were just about to have arrived on the scene. And then there's the mic drop moment is that, oh, who's this Native American woman? She's Sacagawea. So anyway, we're now at the book's epilogue, which is the best part of this book, bar none. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah. Okay, here's what we learn in the epilogue. Adam and Ellie with Franklin in tow, they're on their way home to Massachusetts. Sacagawea helped them along with a bunch of native guides. Um, Ellie had originally wanted to try to catch up to Lewis and Clark, but she really realized that this was a futile pursuit um, when they learned from Sacagawea that she was the only woman on the expedition and that was only allowed because she could serve as a translator when they approached other Native American tribes. Um, Sacagawea's husband basically said that he was going to kill the Brewster brothers or otherwise torture them. I say go for it, man. Adam, we also learn that he showed Sacagawea the animal skin map that Franklin dug up. And Sacagawea just happened to point to a marking at the bottom corner that was replicated on the medallion. Whoa, 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 whoa. Emily? I'm seeing your face right now. You, what I'm about to say, you didn't know. Do not say it because I have to reveal it. But did you not know this? Did you not catch this? Emily, this is why I said the last the epilogue was the best part. Are you kidding me? And that's me? why if you go back and listen, I was like, yeah. And when I agreed with you, <laughs> because I didn't put this together. We'll get to your re- reaction. I need to reveal this and then we can get to your reaction. Sacagawea points to this bottom corner symbol at the bottom of the map that we had not heard of before. Apparently, this symbol is also on the medallion. And the symbol is sort of like a human that looks like it has six slashes on it. Sacagawea looks at this and says, oh, that's the mountain range known as the Six Grandfathers by the Lakota. And this is what Emily didn't realize, that this naturally refers to Mount Rushmore. And this, of course, is Mount Rushmore, proving my theory that I've had since book one that the medallion is a means to get to Cibola, tying in ultimately to National Treasure 2. Any reflections on that discovery of yours, Emily? Does Mount Rushmore have six heads? It Did doesn't. the Native Americans carve the heads? What kind of question is that? Oh, uh, okay. So it was just a mountain range that had like six peaks on it or something that they just referred to as six grandfathers and yes then we did learn later, about this when we were doing research a while ago but continue i'm helping our listeners who may have forgotten and then later borglum carved the faces into the mountain yes there were a lot of sacred mountains in this area and as we know the other giveaway should have been the lakota there mm. yeah you know? i see that now I'm sure you do. So anyway, um, there are some other interesting tidbits here that if Emily didn't get that, she certainly didn't get. I'm about to blow your mind some more. Okay. They say that the mark, this marking on the map looks way newer than the rest of the writing on the map. 
So that implies that this marking was added later. This suggests that the Roanoke colonists, of course, if the protagonist's theory about the Roanoke colonists and the trunk is correct, this would suggest that the Roanoke colonists found Cibola or at least found out where it was in the Black Hills per National Treasure too. Why? Because they would have left this map to basically say, this is where we can find our belongings. And they came back later and added this marking to it. I mean, it makes sense. Now, the final piece de resistance, if you will, we also learn that Adam never gave the Jefferson letter to Sacagawea's husband to pass along to Meriwether Lewis. So this means it was no accident or coincidence that young Thomas Gates worked for Charles Carroll of Carrollton in National Treasure. So like he worked with him because he wanted to like figure out the... Oh my gosh! Catherine Hapka! (laughs) Way to go! Jeez, this is so cool. Yeah, that's why. Okay, now do you understand why I texted you that the epilogue was baller? Yeah, I do. I do. It, yeah, that's, that's pretty awesome. So, y'all, that is the book. Um, per protocol, I have to give my, my little two cents because that's what we've started doing at the end of these episodes on the book series. First off, epilogue, epic. Made the whole book worth it. Makes me really sad the last two books in this originally six-part series were never published because suddenly we're doing a really, really, really good job leading into the movies. Yeah. Um, so that's point number one. Point number two, I will say structure-wise, this book is focused way more on the exposition and the adventure than the actual treasure hunt compared to the first two books, which were literally like clue after clue after clue after clue after clue. Oh, oh yes, I remember Yeah, there were also fewer historical name drops and like references in this book compared to the other ones, making it feel less overtly educational and more like an entertainment piece. Did you get that vibe? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Another quick thing, I felt that book one really focused on symbols. True. Book two really focused on riddles. Mm. This book- too much, one could say. (laughs) One could say. But this book really focused on maps. So I'm just wondering what book four will be. Music. I highly doubt it. Same, but it would be nice. I will say in my final thoughts that I, compared to the other two books in the series so far, I liked book three the least until the epilogue. I absolutely adored what I consider to be these two big reveals. So uh, that the colonists left Roanoke to find Cibola and probably found it. And then that Thomas Gates working for Charles Carroll in the beginning of National Treasure, the movie, was basically to follow up on this new clue that would then be passed down in the Gates family. Um, that made this whole book worth it, whole book. And so now I have really high expectations for the fourth and final book, you know? Yeah, I would. I would temper your expectations slightly because I feel like what's going to happen is that it's going to set up more things like this, but it's going to leave some still up in the air and possibly end on like some kind of cliffhanger thing. And then we're not going to have the resolution. 
Yeah, I worry about that too. But a part of me also wonders, like, did they not publish the last two books because it would have, you know, cost the publishing company money while the fourth book did a pretty good job of wrapping things up and it didn't feel the need to be continued? Hmm. Maybe optimism. Maybe. Um, finally, I would like to point out for your benefit, Emily, because since I am guaranteeing you did not notice this yourself, that there is a really nice Gates family tree printed sort of past the postscript in this book. And the family tree covers basically the timeline and the people from book one through book three. And boom, I did know that. I saw it and I realized that the characters that we already knew about were in bold. They were. And we national treasure hunt will post a picture of that family tree on our social medias so that seems like a good time no better time than now for you to remind everyone where they're going to find that picture you can find us on twitter and instagram at nt hunt podcast we are available for your listening ears on spotify apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your pods please go ahead like subscribe rate review do whatever you can on those various platforms and check us out as we post some of the things the pictures that we talked about uh through this episode that we are holding up to one another but of course you cannot see because podcasting is not a visual medium if you liked what you heard today uh complete with my confusion and surprise as we discovered things together for the first time, me and the audience, come back next week as we probably do the same thing again. <laughs> yes. So as Emily so kindly alluded, we will be back in two weeks time with the conclusion of the Gates Family Mystery Series. Book number four is Westward Bound by Katherine Hapka, published by Disney Press. And we cannot wait to see where the story goes. So hey, until then, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our national treasure hunt. Did you really not know he was Riley's ancestor? No, I had, I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs>